0: You know, we've been studying the life of David, and so uh, if you have Bibles, you're going to need those this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I think our ushers are around, they can pass a Bible to you. Uh, If you need a copy of the Bible today, you can either take that home if you don't have one, or you can uh, leave that on the table as you go out. But We're going to go through that quickly, kind of all over Scripture today, so you'll have to kind of buckle your seatbelts up and and move along quickly through. We're going to spend our first time in 2 Samuel, um, really chapter 18. We're going to kind of flip through 2 Samuel, um, but 18 is where we're going to eventually hit here in a few minutes if you want to kind of turn to 2 Samuel 18. We've been studying the life of David as a church this summer, and uh, we see that some of the greatest Bible stories in all of Scripture come from the life of David. I mean, David was this... This little scrawny boy that eventually became the king of Israel, one of the greatest, the greatest king of Israel. Um, This was David who killed Goliath. Um, This is David who has lots of great stories that we, the Bible calls him the man after God's own heart. Uh, Man, what a way to be referred to in scripture. That was David. But David also, we've learned in the last few weeks, two or three weeks, David also had uh, a human side to him. He was not, um, he he was just human like you and I, and he made some mistakes. In fact, his biggest mistake we talked about, um, at least recorded anyway, was his sin with Bathsheba. And we kind of unpacked that a few weeks ago. Pastor Christian took us through that. Um, And we've seen David kind of um, have some major struggles. But David did turn, um, because David had a friend named Nathan. And by the way, we all need a friend like Nathan. But Nathan, in 2 Samuel 12, there's a conversation that takes place. David has, I mean, failed miserably. Um, and he's, you know, I think, I think he's sorry, but at the same time, still kind of living and continuing down that direction until a friend named Nathan comes and talks to David. And this friend Nathan basically calls him out and says, You've got to turn from where you're going. And after, you know, he kind of explains to him, and you can't keep going down that road. And David eventually breaks. And here's what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 12 Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin you are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And what we see in this short part of scripture is that there are some consequences that David is going to have to face. It's not that he's not forgiven. It's not that the sin he he turned from that. Um, I believe all of that. In fact, in the Psalms, you can see where there's some very heartfelt prayers of David. I believe he had moved on, but there was a rough road ahead of him and it had to do with his family. Like there were some major consequences he was going to have to deal with, and he gives us a kind of a picture of, of his family in fact, uh, scripture tells us right there that uh, the child that uh, is with Bathsheba, the one that Bathsheba was carrying um, was his, and that that child would die, even though David would go and pray and fast um, that child was taken from him. He had two other children that we see right away that um, Amnon was another one that was killed, Amnon uh, made a pretty pretty rough mistake where he went and Um, raped his half-sister, essentially, and after a couple of years of of no one doing anything about it, uh, David's third son, named Absalom, came on the scene, and Absalom decided to take matters into his own hands, and so he killed Amnon. He killed him and and basically said, someone's got to do something about this, and so he took it into his own hands, and then Absalom, David's third son, runs and flees from Israel. And a couple of years go by, in fact, about five years go by in total. But basically, during those three years apart from David and Absalom, one scripture tells us that, that David longed to, to be with Absalom, but for whatever reason, the, the conversation never took place and never got together. And in the meantime, David uh, took upon some counsel of his own and decided to um, get a revolt against his own dad. And so David, who is the king of Israel, Absalom begins to revolt and actually get some of the Israelites to to join in with him, the army to join in with him. And and before long, we have a revolt on our hands with Absalom's plan is to overthrow his own father. And in fact, David comes to a point after about three years into that, he goes and he flees and he goes on top of this mountain and begins to pray. And so the battle eventually ensues and we see that even even as David gave his last direction to to the army to go out, he said, be careful." Be careful with Absalom. Be gentle with Absalom. And then we see that Absalom, eventually, um, he's killed uh, running from battle, essentially. He's on his horse, and he um, runs into a tree, a tree limb overhanging, knocks him off, kills him, and he dies. Now, the story, um, the people that are around go tell David the news, and that's recorded in in, um, 2 Samuel chapter 18. I want to read it to you this morning. In verse 32. So the Kushite, so the king asked the Kushite, that's the person who's going to tell him about um, his son Absalom. He asked the question, the very first question, he says, is, young, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise up to harm you, be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now we see two different responses here. I mean, the first one is the the guy sharing the news, basically thinks he's bringing David some good news. Like, how dare Absalom ever rise up against you? Because, by the way, to revolt against Absalom was to revolt against God. I mean, that was going against God's anointed that was David. I mean, that was a big deal. And so this guy says, man, don't worry, he's, he's taken care of. In fact, I hope that everybody who rises up against you as the fate of Absalom. And David's response is different. He said, Absalom, I, I would have rather died in your place. And we see in that moment a picture, a, a really the heart of a father that comes out of David. Now, today I'm not, I'm not up here to, to go through David's parenting skills because I don't think we have enough information, first of all. Second of all, I'm not here to give, um, tell you how to parent your kids because I'm a, I'm a new beginner. I consider myself a beginner as a parent. I have a five year old and a three year old. Um, I need your help trying to parent my kids, to be honest with you. And so I'm not here to give expert advice on parenting. That is not what I want to do at all. But I think if we see something very, very important here, it gives us an example of a reality that I believe we face. You know, I've been doing ministry for a while, and I've done a lot of study on family ministry, and I've been to different churches trying to learn um, a lot about family ministry, and here's why. I mean, this has been going on for more than a decade, in fact, almost two decades, and and probably goes back even further than that. I don't know why this is happening. I have some ideas. But did you know that 80%, most, and this is probably a conservative number, you could probably add 10 or take away 10, um, but 80% of all teenagers, by the time they hit 21, no longer go to church. 80%. That's four out of five that no longer, for whatever reason, they hit you know, they hit their early 20s, and they don't go to church anymore. Now, there's a lot of people in their late mid to late 20s who are coming back, so I think eventually some of those come back, and I'm not sure how to gauge all of that. But the reality is this. Our kids are leaving the church, our next generation, like I call it. So going from birth all the way through our teenagers, we've got to figure out as a church. I believe we have to figure out how do we lead our kids spiritually. And maybe the better way of saying is how do we help them discover a lifetime of faith? To where it's not just leading them to a moment of faith where they although that moment of salvation, don't get me wrong, that, that's an important moment in the life of every believer is the moment of salvation. But then we kind of go through moments of spiritual spurts where we we grow for a little bit and then we stop and kind of this roller coaster effect and eventually we hope everyone comes out okay. I believe we we are our kids to have a better plan than that. I believe we are ourselves, and the church I think has to come around this idea. So as we see this um, story of David and Absalom today. We see David's brokenness, and he shows us unconditional love for his kid, because there was nothing that Absalom could have ever done that would have changed that. I mean, he killed somebody. He, he was trying to overthrow or, or even kill his dad if he had to. I mean, there, there was a list of things that Absalom had done, and David, if you look at it from that, from not the unconditional love perspective, he would have every right to kind of cast his son aside, but he said, no, no, no. I love him. Isn't that what God does for us? Like, if you have kids, you, you get this idea. Because I, for the first time when I had kids, began to kind of understand what unconditional love really looks like, that there is nothing my kids could ever do that would make me not love them. And so we know that is true. So I want to kind of go through just a couple of common grounds this morning um, as we begin to kind of build on this idea of a lifetime of faith. And again, I think the, as we go through these faith points, I think it's way more than just parenting skills. So I want you to hear me on that. It's not just a list of parenting skills. If we do this, it'll work. It's it's way deeper than that. And so just some common ground. I believe that most parents desire what is best for their children. Now, when I wrote this earlier in the week, I had the word all. I had all parents desire what is best for their children. But then I watched the news one night, right? I mean, it's kind of scary. and, And unfortunately, we live in a world that this isn't true. Like, All parents don't want what's best for their child. But I believe believe most parents do, and probably I'm not sure what the exact language would be the best to best describe this, but I think maybe almost all, I mean, there's a, obviously almost everybody who are parents wants what's best for their child. But the second statement is this, I want want us to kind of land on this statement, is that I believe all passionate Christians would agree, and again, it might take some thinking, but they would agree that if they could give their child any one thing, it would be a lifetime of faith. Now, all of us that have kids, um, we understand that we want our kids to have a good education. We want them to have good, meaningful, healthy relationships. We want our kids to uh, eventually figure out what their purpose is in life. We hope that they find out what God's purpose is for them, but uh, you know, we, we hope that eventually they'll figure out what they're supposed to do with their life, and then you know, we hope that they'll be successful in what they do in school, so they'll find out what they're talented in and, and go pursue that, whether it's a sport, whether it's drama, whether it's Whatever talent or ability they've been given, we hope that they'll figure out what that is and succeed in that. We also want them to eventually um, find a job. So we want them to go maybe to college or just find a trade. We want them to be successful in their job, right? So they can self-support themselves and move out of our house, right? Yeah, everyone said if you're a parent, you just, of course, you're like, amen, sign me up. Um, like, you want them to, to be successful. We hope they'll find a spouse someday, so they'll live happily ever after, and we want all those things for our kids, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But let me ask you this question. Which one of those things would you trade for a lifetime of faith? Like if you had the ability to give them a lifetime of faith, a faith that would be unwavering, a faith that, that would last forever, wouldn't be here one week, gone the next, a lifetime of faith, which one would you give up? And the answer is, if we, if we all knew that this is, we could do this, we give them that lifetime of faith. That'd be the one thing we would definitely, we, we'd move anything aside if we had to to give them that. Now, we've used the word faith. Let's, let's define that a minute because there's lots of definitions for faith that you see in Scripture and you know that you've, you've kind of read. But when you look at the word faith in the Greek language, the Bible was originally written in a, in a different language than English, so sometimes we go back to the, the Greek language. And the word pistos, which is the word faith that's used several times in Scripture, when you see that word used for faith, um, again, we kind of define faith dif- faith differently, but faith. This word pistos always embodies three things. One, it, it has to do with possessing a firm conviction. Secondly, making a personal surrender. And Then third, demonstrating a corresponding behavior. Someone who possesses something within them, some, something who that um, they they respond and they surrender to that faith. But then the the response is a behavior that comes because of. Their faith. That's going to be important as we go because we look through two, uh, two statements to help us understand something that I think is absolutely crucial, not just as a parent, as a family ministry leader, as someone who, um, anyone who would invest in kids. And by the way, this is not, I mean, you've heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise a kid, right? I don't know if that's the exact phrase, but you know what I'm talking about, right? It takes a lot of people to invest into kids. And if you're here and you're like, I don't have kids yet, or I don't ever want kids, um, like everyone, around in this church. It's a church effort. Like we have to invest in the lives of kids and none of us are really exempt from that. Here's what we have to understand, otherwise we'll drive ourselves crazy. The first one is faith is supernatural. We are not capable of creating it in another person. Believe me, if I could, I would. I mean, I've worked with teenagers long enough that if I could just give them, you know, sometimes you have a student that's just so close but yet so far away and if you could just, just somehow give them faith... If I could somehow impose it on them, I would, but I can't because I can't create it. It's, it's not for me. It's, it's supernatural. And the second one is, in fact, it, it's important to understand that if we try to manufacture or impose faith on others, they often become resistant or even rebellious. Again, enter Absalom. I don't know everything that happened in the life of David and Absalom, but I know this. He turned and He ran. And there are many Absaloms that maybe are represented in this room. Maybe you were an Absalom. Maybe you still are Absalom. Maybe you're right in the midst of it. Maybe you just you know your kids are heading that direction. But the reality is if we try to impose it, and this is not just a parenting tactic. This is a faith. This is something that, man, if, if we're trying to develop people and, and disciple people, we can't impose it on people. Because eventually they'll rebel and they'll, there, there's something more than that. So how does faith happen? And that's the question I want to ask today. So how do, how does, how's a lifetime of faith built? If we know we can't create it for somebody, if we know we can't impose it on somebody, how do we, how do we nurture that within our kids? And it's not just limited to our kids. I believe these are, these are foundational points that can help anybody who is growing in their faith become stronger in their faith. But in the context of what we're talking about today, it's it's primarily kids. It's primarily our families. And so the first one we see is faith in family. The first anchor point, if you will, would be if we're going to develop faith, if we're going to develop lifelong faith in our kids, if we're going to let them or guide them to that point, it's got to start with our family, faith in family. So Jesus was asked a question. In Matthew 22, some of the religious leaders of the day came to Jesus and basically was asking him a question. What's the greatest commandment? In other words, in the Old Testament, with all the laws that we follow, what is the most important one? They were really curious to see what Jesus would say, and he said this. Um, So teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now Jesus wasn't just pulling this out of the air, because this was a very familiar phrase, a very familiar scripture in the Jewish custom, basically. Like this was, they called it the Shema, still call it the Shema. If you go to a Jewish service today anywhere, you would hear uh, them open the service with this statement and probably close the service with this statement. This was part of their DNA as a group of believers. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is sharing with the people, the Israelites, they had kind of been wandering around and um, he has a new group of people who hadn't really, they weren't around when the initial commandments were given in Exodus And so he reviews the law with them. And here's what he says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be worn on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates." And what we see is this important truth. What Jesus says is the greatest commandment that if you can love God with all your heart, if you can start there, the second part of Jesus' statement, he says the second thing that's important is that you go and love people. So you take what God has done for you and you go live your life loving people around you. But the primary method for that, according to Scripture, the primary vehicle for spiritual formation is the family, it's all generational. He said, in fact, if you guys move on, if you don't do this, your, your kids will grow up and we'll have a generation that doesn't know God because it's our primary role as family to share faith with our kids. Now, it can't just be our family. In fact, we'll talk about how the church has to be part of that. But the primary vehicle is for the family. Secondly, here we have having faith conversations drastically increase faith. You know, he goes through and, and Moses, said, he lists several things. If you go back through that text, you'll see several different opportunities to talk to your kids about their faith. Basically, he says every day, all day long, you're supposed to look for opportunities to talk about faith with your kids, right? And so at nighttime, I put my five-year-old to bed every night and I read him a book and, and we pray together. And even as a five-year-old, I'm asking him questions, again, not that I'm trying to just pour information into his life, but I want to hear what he's thinking. I want to try to start having conversations, even as a five-year-old, about his faith. Because spiritual conversations, faith conversations, drastically increase your faith. So parents, when was the last time you talked to your kid about their faith? When was the last time you sat them down and had a conversation about what they're learning at church? We believe this is really important as a church. In fact, our church curriculum for our kids builds this into it so that you can have conversations with your kids because faith conversations drastically increase faith. So let's move on to the next one is faith in formation. So we talked about the family has to be the driver of this, but what does for spiritual formation look like? And how does a kid, how does anybody begin to grow in their faith? And, and uh, this word formation is really important. I'm not talking about salvation. I believe salvation Happens in a moment. I believe that that is a decision that we make, Um, and this is more than that. So I'm talking about formation, meaning that we learn to grow spiritually. You could put the word discipleship. You could put a couple different words that would kind of say the same thing. But for the sake of conversation, faith in formation. If we go to Galatians chapter four, we see Paul, I believe, address this issue, and he's writing to the church in Galatia. He says this. He says, "My dear children." And again, he's not talking about children. He's actually talking about spiritual children at this point. He says, For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Now, you don't have to read very far to understand Paul's a little upset. I mean, Paul's a little... He's struggling because what he sees is a body of very new believers who aren't growing in their faith. They have the moment of salvation, but but there's nothing... He says you need to be formed spiritually, and it takes some work, it takes some effort, but how does that, how does that happen? And I believe that maybe one of the best ways to put this phrase, and maybe it's oversimplistic. I don't know, we'll talk about that in a second, but spiritual formation is where people discover how to meet with Jesus. Paul says until Christ is formed in you. So spiritual formation is where people discover how to meet with Jesus. I use this phrase a lot, especially with teenagers. But I'll ask the question, how are you and Jesus doing? How are you and Jesus doing? If you want to see somebody squirm, sometimes you ask that question and they'll start to squirm a little bit. Because to answer that question, they have to go through a bunch of different things. Because it's not just, I mean, you know, we ask that question, that's really kind of a loaded question, but it seems so simple. Because in order to meet with Jesus, I have to do a lot of different things. I think going to church is important. I think reading scripture is important. I think praying is important. I think being in a group where you're growing, being, being around Christian friends is important. I make a list of a bunch of things that are really necessary for you to do that. But at the same time, you could do all of that and not necessarily grow closer to Jesus. Say, how is that possible? I don't know. But if you go through the motions, which this church in Galatia, they, had start, they were getting really good at going through the motions I mean God had really changed their life and they started a church and they were there every day and they were they were praying and they were doing all these things and yet for some reason Paul was upset with them because they weren't growing any spiritually. So how are you and Jesus doing today? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How would you answer that today? How are you and Jesus doing today? As we go through the spiritual formation, I think it's important to throw out, and I put a caution for parents, but really this is a caution for reaching out to anybody, but just a couple of things that are really important um, when it comes to formation. The first one is, be careful not to communicate information without formation. Be careful not to just throw a bunch of information without allowing the formation to take place. say, Scott, what do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. If we were to go through the Old Testament, and let's pull out the story of Noah, and we all know Noah, and Noah was commanded to build an ark, right? And so he, um, you know, he, he did what God told him to do. And so, so how many days did it rain? Go ahead. Forty. Okay. Um, how, many, uh, how many of each animal did he bring on the ark? Two. And some of you smarty pants will know that there are a few species that took you know, seven. So we, give, we applaud the smarty pants people for if you do that out there. But there are, there are a lot. We all know the answer. Let me ask you this question. What was it made of? Gopher wood, yeah, specifically gopher wood. And I don't even really know what gopher wood is, but it's in scripture, and you know, I, I can't find it at Home Depot. But I know that gopher wood exists, and that's what they were supposed to. But here's what I've never heard. Uh, and again, I'm, you know, this could happen. I don't know. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. But I've never been to a camp, heard a testimony, heard a story of life change that goes like this. You know, I was in a really dark place, and and uh, you know, just broken. And then um, I discovered gopher wood. Anyone ever heard that one? No, of course not. Why? Because go for what doesn't change your life. It's information that's important, but, but information without formation, without understanding the purpose behind it, doesn't impact your life. But so often, we can, if we're not careful, we can throw information after information after information to our kids, and we're not letting it change them. Like, the goal is not to read the Bible to change, or to finish, it's to read the Bible to change, Right? I mean, we should be reading the Bible so that something changes within us, because just information is not important. Now, now I'm, don't get me wrong. I think scripture memorization is very important. I believe in that. I believe it's very, very important. Um, obviously, Bible reading, information, going to church, all these things we need to do. But we need to do more than that. We need to learn how to meet with Jesus. Secondly, um, don't focus more on rules than relationships. Now, I think everyone understands a couple of things. One, we need rules. We don't like them, but we need them. In fact, some of you woke up a little bit late this morning, so you were driving to church, and you were really... Um, maybe you obeyed the speed limit. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. That's, that's between you and God, not me. Um, but we live by rules. We live by them. We have to. We, we need to have rules in our life. But here's the deal. They can't be more important than relationships. And here's what I, what I mean by that. In Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, again, we see the same... Paul addressing the same group just a few chapters earlier... And here's what he says to them. In Galatians chapter two, for though the law I died so that or for through the law I died so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me, who gave himself for me, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, Paul, again, is addressing in this text some religious extremists in the church of Galatia, and they were convinced of this. They were convinced that, that these believers were, if they could have good enough behavior and perfect performance, then God would accept them and love them. And Paul argues passionately that, no, no, it, it's grace. It is grace. It's not the law that's going to save you. It's, it's grace. And so what we have to understand is rules are important. We need laws in this country God obviously designed them to protect us, right? But the purpose of them is not to just follow them. The purpose is to guide us in grace. You combine rules with grace in relationship, in the context of relationships. That's where spiritual formation takes place. So be careful not to focus so much on the rules that we miss the relationship with our kids. Because grace does not make obedience optional, but obtainable. Like obedience doesn't at that point doesn't become an option. It's something that I I can now do that because of what Jesus has done in me. We've got to show our kids that. It's not just a list of rules or rights and wrongs that we have to follow. It's more than that. Grace does not make obedience optional, but obtainable. And then the third one is don't forget what is most important. Don't forget what is most important. And let me talk just a minute about time. Now I could go on all day about time um, because we live in such a busy world and it is an issue. I mean, it really is an issue when it comes to um, raising our kids. I mean, it is getting increasingly busy. I don't know that we'll ever stop the busyness. But it's, it's really an issue in a lot of different ways. Now, I think we should all live our lives. There are lots of things. You, again, you want your kids to, um, you know, to grow up and experience different things. We have sports activities that are great. We love all those things. But, man, it is busy. So we have to figure out what's most important. A few years ago, I got an app on my phone through the, the Rethink group, which is, um, they created the orange curriculum that we use here for our kids. And they have what's called a legacy app. And I load it to my phone because it tells me this. I can click on here at any given time. And it tells me that for my oldest son, Cody, who will turn 6 in September, I have 613 weeks until he graduates from high school. That's 4,293 days, 103,020 hours. Now, there are some days where I hope this can move a little faster. But most of the time, I don't. For Kyle, my second son, I see there's 17, 718 weeks until graduation. I've seen it done this way also. That you can get a, a jar of marbles, and I think something like 936 marbles from the, the day you're born to graduate from high school is roughly 936 weeks. So you can buy a, I don't know how big that jar has to be, but 936 marbles that fit into this jar, and every week you go and you take out a marble. And you do this, and it's a reminder of time, and you do this until eventually there are no more marbles in that jar And many of you are thinking, just like I am, that I lost my marbles about two weeks into having a kid, but um, you you, you lose those marbles week after week after week until they're all gone. Here's what it reminds you. Now, when I say that, don't think that you have to spend every single minute, like with purpose, and you don't want to miss a single minute that goes by because you'll drive yourself crazy. But Reggie Joyner says it this way, when you see how much time you have left, you tend to do more with the time that you have now. Did you catch that? When you see how much time you have left, you tend to do more with the time that you have now. See, we get to choose how we spend our time. And it's important that we choose wisely how we spend our time. Jesus addresses this because we see it in Scripture in Luke chapter 10. Um, There's a story where Scripture encounters two people that choose differently. Here's what it says. Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home with him. She had a, a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had, had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Verse 41 says, Martha, Martha. And I always have to pause there because I always want to say Marsha, is Marcia, um, Anyway, uh, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen what is better. So you have someone who's doing all the work, worried that people aren't working like they are, and she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Like for the opportunity of a lifetime, right? We've got to choose what's best. Doug Field's a guy I follow quite a bit, and I've learned so much from over the years in family ministry. says it this way. He says, The key is not to prioritize your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. so what's most important to you. I promise if you pull out your calendar, it'll tell you a great deal about what, what is most important to you. So what's your calendar look like? Where do you schedule time for your kids? Where do you schedule time for the spiritual formation of your kids? Remember what is most important. Thirdly, in our kind of anchor points, we see faith in action is important. Faith and action. This is a big one because, again, this is all over Scripture. And I'm going to use a verse, but really it's, it's more than just this verse because every time you see Jesus come interact with people, oftentimes he's, he's impressed by somebody's faith. And if you unpack that and look at why he's so impressed, it's because there was action associated with it. He was always impressed by the people who didn't just sit around talking about it, who didn't just believe it but sit and do nothing about it. He was impressed by the ones that took steps of faith and actually approached him. And it's usually the most unlikely people that would have taken an action step in order to show their faith. James 2 says this in verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Here's a statement I want you to fill in in your notes. Faith is a noun, trust is a verb, but trust is faith in action. Trust is faith in action. We see Jesus is tempted and Jesus um, shows us what trust is about here. In Matthew chapter four, he's tempted Jesus, led him, into the spirit, into the, or led him by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 de- fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you, are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread? And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, when Jesus is tempted by this what would seem to be kind of a strange temptation, right? He's hungry. I mean he possesses the power to turn a bread into or a rock into bread if he wants to. Um, so what's the big deal? He's hungry, but yet this temptation comes, and the temptation is this. And he pulls a scripture from Deuteronomy chapter eight. Again, Moses kind of reminding the people, and here's what Moses was reminding the people about in Deuteronomy chapter eight, because the, the group of people he was talking to had just come through several years, 40 years of, of going through, wandering in the wilderness, and every day they would wake up, and they would eat manna. God made this, this bread rain down from heaven called manna, and they would eat that every day. Here's the deal. They would come in the morning, and they, they would have it laying everywhere, and they would go pick it up, And they could take just what they would need for the day because it would spoil tomorrow. Meaning they couldn't hoard enough to last them a week. What they had to do is they had to trust God every day. Every day they would wake up and they would trust God to see if he would provide food. And every day they would get up the next day, not knowing, and they have to trust God for food. And the next day they had to get up and they have to trust God for food. And a week later they have to trust God for food. A year later they have to trust God for food. It was trust, trust, trust. And Moses was telling the people, I'm afraid when you move on, so you're going to forget that it was God that provided that bread, that it was God that did that for you. I don't want you to forget that. You see, trust is an action. And every time we're tempted with something, what Jesus is telling us here, when we're tempted with something in our life, you can name the temptation, it doesn't matter. When you're tempted with it, that's ultimately a test of whether or not you trust God. I mean, it really is. When you're worried about something, that's ultimately a test that you trust God, when you decide to do something on your own, it's, that's, that's a test to see if you trust God. See, trust is an action. Faith in action is trust. Listen, your kids are going to mess up along the way. We've got to give them places that they can go live out their faith. We've got to let them actively pursue their faith. That's why I'm so big in the missions for our kids. Um, they need to get out and pursue and, and do things with what they believe. The last one is this, and this is a very important one. Faith in modeling. Now again, another another anchor point that's all over scripture. And we see it probably best recorded, at least simple for us to understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse one, where Paul says this, he says, follow my example as I followed the example of Christ. Leadership in the Bible, not just parenting, but leadership in general. When you look in the Bible, leadership is primarily example. It's primarily example. I mean, you can say what you want to, but if you don't back it up, it doesn't mean a whole lot. And I promise you, your kids are watching you. You already know this if you're a parent. Like, your kids do the things you do. They do the things you don't want them to do because they saw you do it, and you're like, ah! Oh. They, they're watching you. And the reality we said early in, in the message is you can't create faith for someone else, but you can show them what faith looks like. You can't create it for them, but you can show them what it looks like. When I was in college, I had a job, one of my first jobs in college was a teller, a bank teller. I got to go to teller school for a week um, where I got to play with like play money. It's kind of like Monopoly, only I got paid for doing it. I mean, it's just, you go through and you kind of, you play with money and um, they kind of teach you how to do stuff before you actually play with real money. Um, And at the end of the deal, um, the lady walked in and she handed me a hundred dollar bill. Now in college, I hadn't really seen a hundred dollar bill. So, um, you know, I, and I still haven't seen many hundred-dollar bills. But um, I was holding this hundred-dollar bill, kind of. What's the point? And I'm, she says, "We're we're look, We're going to talk about counterfeit bills." And so I began to look at this hundred-dollar bill. And again, I hadn't seen enough to really know the difference. And so I'm looking, and I, I'm like, "I can't. I don't. Why is this? It looks like it's real to me. Why is it different?" She said, "It is real." And so again, I asked the question. You know, what? Why? Did you, well, how am I going to learn about a counterfeit dollar or hundred-dollar if you show me the real thing? She said, "The point is, you could not." Find all the different ways to counterfeit it. But if you can learn what the real one looks like, you'll see a fake one the minute you see it. Our kids are looking at us. Our kids are looking for the real deal, and they are looking to see if you believe what you say. And how we live, how we model it for them is absolutely critical. And lastly, I believe this is important, that God... God's design for parents does not require perfection. It requires faithfulness. Now, I hope that's an encouragement to you because if you're like me, you failed already as a parent in a lot of different ways. I fail as a Christian every day. I'm not perfect. I don't think I'll ever will be perfect. But God's looking for faithfulness. A few months ago, I was on the beach with my son and uh, we were... My oldest son, who is, who's five, um, he'd been to the ocean before, so he, he's a lot different than my two-year-old, so he, he can kind of go, and I can trust him to not go just walking into the water until he can't walk anymore. He knows his limits. My two-year-old's totally different. He would just run, like, without even thinking about it, into the water until he, the white waves would take him away. So I have him really close to me. His name's Kyle, and so um, we're out there, and his brother is um, out there jumping the waves. And so every time a wave would come in, my, my five-year-old would jump over the wave and my two-year-old would want to do what my older son is doing, but his vertical is about two inches because he's two. So like jumping over a wave, not, not really going to happen. So I'm out there with him in the waves, and I, as he kind of starts to jump, I grab his hands and like help him jump up you know, really fast. So he, and he thinks it's really funny because he thinks he's jumping that high. Um, I don't think he really did, but he did this for hours. Like literally had to, ju- you know, jump every time a wave came in. Jump! And then eventually like my... Um, family that was with me had to kind of relieve me because he wouldn't stop and I, my arms were like dying. Um, it's a little workout, you know, just raising him up every time he'd jump, jump, jump. And what I saw that day, I saw a picture that God kind of gave me about faithfulness. Because I, again, as a parent, I understand more about God. And I understood that day that faithfulness is something that God shows me every day. Regardless of what mistakes I made, God's, God's the same. God's faithful, even though I'm not. And as I grabbed, as, as he grabbed onto my hands, I saw the picture of he, as long as he hung on to me, he was gonna be okay regardless of what wave came in. Because some waves would come and be bigger than others and he would not jump as high and they would hit him and you know, he would kind of start to lose his balance a little bit. But as long as I hang on to him, he was not going anywhere. And as a parent, it's important to understand that you and I as parents cannot stop the waves from coming in. You cannot protect your kid from every different wave of life. The waves are coming and the ways will never stop coming. But we as parents have to figure out how do we connect them to God? How do we teach them how to hang on to God for dear life in every moment? And as we teach them to hang on to God for dear life, they'll understand what it means to grow in their faith. And they'll understand how they make it in this life without wavering because they're they're grabbing a hold of God. That's what we've got to teach our kids. And it starts with modeling it. I want to close and I want to pray for you today. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes today.